Previously on The Dream. The health freedom movement, broadly anti-vaxxers, they all say that the government is hiding the cure for cancer or autism or what have you because uh, they make more money off of us when we're sick. I do tend to point out that at all these conferences, they leave the lecture hall and they literally enter a marketplace immediately. That's how all of them are set up Mm -hmm. so that you are funneled directly into the place where you buy things. You will hear people with you know, a scientific specialty in one field claiming expertise in another. Remember early on in the season when we were talking about the origins of the vitamin and supplement industry? In a nutshell, all of these products we ingest or rub on ourselves or whatever They came about because right around the Industrial Revolution, we started messing with our food in ways that took vital nutrients out of it. Most of that messing around was done in an effort to preserve food or make it safer. Around the same time, trains started moving food and drinks and drugs around the country faster than ever before, so folks up north could suddenly have salad at Christmas time. It was thrilling, for salad eaters, probably. But as with any new technology or big trend away from old practices, along with all this progress came the con men. Take bread, for example. You used to have to bake it yourself or go to your baker and buy it and eat it that day before it went bad. But then with preservatives and faster shipping, bread factories came along. And with them, money-hungry industry types who decided to put things in bread like copper sulfate to make it seem heavier. They watered down our milk and then added chalk to it to make it look like they hadn't. And they, okay, now this one's really gross. They mixed ground up lice into sugar. And that's just the food. Drugs were getting adulterated as well. Just about any cough syrup you gave your kid at that time had some sort of opiate in it. Cocaine was everywhere, famously inspiring the name of Coca-Cola. Arsenic in beauty products, lead in everything. It was a mess. As these dangers became more well-known, the government began to do its job, to protect the public interest. Beginning in the 1870s, Congress took up like a hundred bills trying to regulate this stuff, until finally the Federal Food and Drug Act was passed in 1906, which basically said, you can't sell food or drugs that can hurt or kill people. We're making that illegal now. You can't cover up food additives. You have to tell people if what you're selling them contains heroin. The guidebook for what was okay for people and what wasn't was the U.S. Pharmacopeia, or USP. You've seen that on bottles. And it's a book kind of like the DSM, the one that they use for mental health. But it's for food and drugs. A lot of folks in the supplement industry try to make it sound like the USP has some sort of governing power, but they don't. They're an encyclopedia. And if you're playing by the rules, it's pretty useful in making sure you don't hurt anyone with your products. But that's it. But if you didn't care and you were just trying to make money, you could ignore the USP. And the FDA at the time was mostly focused on all that food nonsense, not so much on the drugs. So people still got away with murder, literally, until a new version of the law was passed in 1938 called the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. This is the one that said you had to prove the safety of your products before you sold them to people. And that's the idea the supplement industry has been fighting against ever since. The fight basically boils down to this. Who do you trust more with your health and safety? Government or industry? Are you a fan of the jungle or Atlas Shrugged? Bernie or Trump? 
The problem complicating this at this particular moment in time is that it's hard to tell the difference between industry scions like Bezos and government scions like Trump. But the bottom line is that protecting our own health and safety requires information. And right now, no one has to provide it. Today, you're going to hear from two people at the front lines of this fight that is still raging. The first, David Kessler, was the FDA commissioner when Deshay, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, passed in 1994. That's the one that basically stopped the FDA from ever regulating vitamins and supplements. It wasn't his fault that the supplement industry bill got passed, but we wanted to know how the hell it happened. How did the organization that we think of as the one who keeps us safe, how did they lose control here? Our other guest, Steve Mister, yes, Mister Mister is his name, is the president of the Council for Responsible Nutrition, which sounds like a food safety board or something, but is actually just the cleverly named largest lobbying organization for the supplement industry. Here's David Kessler, formerly of the FDA. So I was commissioner of FDA under two presidents, uh, appointed by the first President Bush, uh, reappointed by uh, President Clinton, and was there for a little under seven years. Um, I'm a, a physician. Uh, I'm a pediatrician. I was uh, I, I ran a hospital in the Bronx and uh, was dean of uh, two uh, uh, medical schools. And here is Steve Mister from CRN. I'm Steve Mister. I'm the president and CEO of the Council for Responsible Nutrition. The Council for Responsible Nutrition, or we call it CRN, is the industry's trade association for dietary supplements. So uh, we are a member organization, and our members are the companies that make both the, uh, the finished products that you would see on the shelf, as well as all of the ingredients that are in the supply chain. So we represent about 190 companies between those companies that are making products and those that are providing uh, services to the industry. I looked up who some of those companies are on their hilarious stock photo-filled website. So many smiling faces in business attire. And they include, wait for it, Amway, Avon, doTERRA, Herbalife, The Honest Company, Mary Kay for some reason, even though they have nutrition in their name. So it's like, what? And then some names you'd expect to see like Bayer and Archer's Daniel Midland. Just keep those names in mind as you listen to Mr. Mister talk about this conglomeration of conglomerates. Dan asked David Kessler what his thoughts were on CRN. What was your impression of the Council for Responsible Nutrition? I, I think that they were sort of middle of the road. Um, they were not um, uh, just a fly-by-night uh, organization. But may, make no mistake, I mean, their members are uh, industry uh, manufacturers who sell these products who have an obligation uh, to their shareholders to make money. Um, nothing wrong with that, but you can't hold them out uh, as a public health group. Can you tell me a little bit about the background, why Deshaies came about? In 1990, Congress passed the Nutrition Labeling Education Act. Um, that required uh, nutrition facts on all packaged foods um, and required certain standards if companies were going to make claims about their food uh, products. So if you wanted to, say, prevent heart disease, 
you had to meet certain scientific standards. You couldn't just uh, say, uh, go have a focus group and say, that's what consumers want, reduces the risk of heart disease, and slap that on your label. You had to have certain science uh, to back up that claim. And Congress set that for food substances. But Congress could not agree among themselves on what should be the standard for that claim on dietary supplements. And basically turfed the issue to FDA and said, FDA, you go decide what the standard should be if a dietary supplement manufacturer wants to make a claim. So what we did was we uh, adopted the same standard as the standard for foods. If you want to make a claim, there should be significant scientific agreement. Not absolute science, not perfect science, but there be scientific agreement that backs up that claim. Okay, so what the FDA meant by significant scientific agreement was repeatable scientific studies done by impartial scientists and doctors. The dietary supplement industry didn't like that. They didn't want to have that kind of scientific rigor to support the claims that they made. And they lobbied Congress very hard. Lawmakers got more mail on that uh, during those years um, than almost any other issue. And that led to the passage of DSHEA. Dan asked Steve Mister what his organization, the Council for Responsible Nutrition, what their role was in the passage of Deshay. CRN was was one of uh, many organizations that was at the table back in 1993 and 94 that led to the passage of Deshay, uh, and we're really very proud of it. Looking back uh, now, it's 25 years old, and the impact that it has had for uh, both the industry and for consumers, it's been remarkable. And what are some of those impacts? The real key to uh, Deshay was that it balanced consumer access, and that was very important. Uh, you know, there were millions of consumers that came out uh, and urged their members of Congress to pass this law. I just want to pause for a second to remind you, those millions of consumers who wrote to Congress in favor of Deshay, those were the people influenced by ads, ads funded and widely distributed by folks from the supplement business. Ads that use scare tactics, like that the government wanted to take away your freedom of choice. Like that one that Mel Gibson starred in, where a SWAT team busted into his home to take away his vitamin C. So it balanced their right to have access to these products, but at the same time created a framework uh, that allowed the FDA to regulate them uh, and to oversee the safety uh, without creating uh, the kinds of pre-market obstacles that would have shut down the industry. What do you think about that? I, I don't think it's accurate. Why not? Because I don't think that the fact is that it ever was a question about access. Uh, the issue was whether there had to be a scientific basis to support its claims. Uh, I would walk into a health food store and there would be big signs say, FDA wants to take your vitamins away or FDA wanted to make your vitamins by prescription. Those were just lobbying gimmicks to gin up the base to get them to write to their congressman. The real issue was whether uh, there had to be significant scientific agreement to support uh, the claims that the industry wanted. What would be the standard for significant scientific agreement? A significant scientific agreement would be, in essence, the weight of the evidence. 
um, not just you know a paper here or a paper there or a paper you pay someone to to publish, but when you look at the evidence, um, the the weight of it, the totality of the evidence supports that claim. By claim, David means what the company claims their products can do. So what happened with the passage of Deshay? What were you left with as far as your ability to regulate or enforce the industry? Basically, Deshay, in a significant way, deregulated dietary supplements, certainly compared to food. Congress just wanted to get it off uh, its plate and said that as long as you're not making a disease claim, You can't say something that this cures Alzheimer's or cures cancer. But if you said that the product um, increases memory or builds the immune system, if it were a structure or function claim, right, the industry could get away with that because the, uh, the FDA would have to bear the burden of showing that that was false rather than the industry having to determine that that was true. I think it's important to remind everyone what happened when Deshay was passed in regards to these claims. These claims are what manufacturers put on dietary supplement bottles to tell people what the supplement's supposed to do. David Kessler and the FDA had been pushing for their claims to be backed by what he refers to as significant scientific agreement. In other words, they had to have science to back up claims on the bottle. The industry didn't want that at all. So they came up with something kind of like a compromise. Because of Deshay, the industry was not allowed to say that their products could prevent or cure a disease. But what they could say was that the product could help your body in its efforts to ward off a disease. This new type of language was called a structure-function claim. There are structure-function claims all over those moon juice powders I was taking. Restores balance on a cellular level, whatever that means. Addresses the effects of stress. Ignites energy in and out of the bedroom. Those are structure-function claims. So by agreeing to no longer tell people that their products could cure or prevent, say, cancer with no scientific evidence to back that claim up, they're now able to say that their products can help your body's immune system in its own efforts to fight cancer. And all of this is why when David from the FDA talks about the passage of Deshay, he sounds like he just got beat up. But when Steve from the industry does, he sounds like he just fell in love. Can we talk about structure function claims? Sure. Can you describe what a structure function claim is? Uh, a structure function claim is is a a claim for the product that that links the uh, product to some sort of beneficial effect on the structure and function of the body. They were very important to the negotiations of Deshay all the way through, uh, because it was important that companies be able to make representations about their products that did not rise to the level of treating a disease. Say I had a product that was being marketed as something that could benefit the body's already existing ways of fending off a certain uh, a type of disease or disease in general. How would I say that on the bottle? So we know that there are, are many both herbals as well as uh, some of the essential nutrients that help uh, build your body's defenses and, and, and build a stronger immune system. So you could put something out if you had evidence of that that says that it uh, helps to, you know, uh, support a stronger immune function or, uh, you know, supports immunity. 
those are a legitimate structure function claims. I stood for, if you want to make a claim, make sure there's some science to uh, support that claim and make sure it's good science. Industry didn't want that. Uh, there were millions and millions of dollars at stake and they readily admitted that. Congress said, you know, these substances, uh, let's not put that burden uh, on the industry. Let them sell their substances. So, you know, Congress gets to, to make those laws, uh, but consumers should understand what those laws are. And the industry, because it, I mean, it, it got the benefits of, in essence, deregulation, uh, shouldn't be able to then say, oh, that law does more than it does. Uh, that law assures um, that their products are safe uh, and their claims are supported. That just isn't the case. But in the end, the American people get what they want through their elected representatives, and they what they get on dietary supplements is consumer beware. Uh, the um, there is no pre market notification uh, with regard to claims or any substantiation of the claims. Uh, the consumer uh, is left uh, to determine for themselves whether the claims are in fact true. I can tell you, if you're talking about anything that would resemble the requirements for a pharmaceutical, we would absolutely oppose that kind of pre-market uh, uh, approval process. Uh, if they were to impose those kinds of standards on these products that are essentially natural products, herbs, botanicals, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and things like that, if they were to impose that level of uh, pre-market uh, review, uh, it would drive the cost up, it would make them unaffordable, and it would really hurt access to these products. Were you proposing pharmaceutical-level pre-market testing be required? No, there was not a requirement for adequate and well-controlled clinical trials, which is what the um, drug standard was. But there was a, a requirement for significant scientific basis for that claim. They would much rather uh, not invest in that science, be able to make the claims that they make, but just the problem is we don't know whether they're true or not. I think they would sell a lot more product and be able to charge more for their product if we if it really had an effect. Right now, uh, these products are sold, and yeah, maybe they work, maybe they don't. Um, good luck. Somewhere between 80 and 85,000 uh, supplements are on the market right now. Is that, does that work with what you, the figures you have? Well, you know, that leads us to another problem that I think that is one of the areas that Deshay didn't take care of. We really don't know how many products are in the U.S. marketplace. FDA has estimated it could be anywhere between 50 and 80,000. Uh, and the fact that you have this you know, 30,000 uh, product delta uh, is a good illustration that despite many of the things Deshay did, it did not allow FDA to really see into the industry and see what the marketplace looks like. And that's one of the reasons that CRN is advocating for something that we call a mandatory product listing, which would be uh, you know, every product that would be in the marketplace would have to notify FDA and give FDA a copy of the label uh, as uh, you know, the entry price of, of getting into the market. And, and that would finally give FDA that last piece of uh, authority to know what's in the industry. And then they could say with certainty, there are 75,000 products or there are 80,000 products because then they would know. 
That all sounds good in theory and sounds like the industry regulating itself. But if you stop for a second and think about it, it's just a database of products. So things could be made up or wrong, right? We asked David. That seems like something that could be helpful to the FDA. As it Does that seem like something that, that would realistically could get passed? And it's subject to some scrutiny and evaluation. Uh, um, and there's independent judgment. Or is it just the industry having the, the say of what's in this database? I'm not familiar with it. I mean, the general rule when it comes to drugs, go read the information about that drug. And you've had an independent evaluation um, that you can trust. And so that would make it illegal for a company to enter the market if they hadn't given prior notice to the FDA? That's right. And it would be an administrative violation. It would be very easy for FDA to enforce that uh, if they you know, found products uh, on Amazon or found products in your local drugstore and they were not properly listed. Uh, that would be an automatic violation. But that's the whole thing. If FDA has to go after each product and make a case, assemble the science, bring in the experts, go to court, spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can do that here or there, and the FDA does it. Maybe the FDA can do a handful of those cases a year, but it certainly can't have a marketplace that has truthful and non-misleading labels. Wave is a free, easy-to-use financial software that helps freelancers, consultants, and small business owners make, move, and manage their money, bringing them closer to financial success through accounting, invoicing, payments, and payroll. Just like Chris. Chris started his own business three years ago and has been using Waves ever since. He was never confident about the financial aspects of running his own business, but since discovering Wave, he was relieved to find a service that made invoicing and payments so straightforward. Wave's free accounting, receipt management, and invoicing tools give your business the professionalism it deserves. Have employees? Wave can pay them directly and automate your payroll tax filings. Payroll helps business owners like Sean. Sean felt like he was dealing with taxes and payroll every day, and making sure everyone got paid took away from the enjoyment of running his business. Having automatic deductions with payroll let him get back to what he enjoys doing most. I am a small business owner and I am a producer, and I can tell you that the financial part is the most annoying part, and I always want to get back to doing what Jane and I do, which is producing shows like this. So Waves seems like a great app. I haven't tried it yet, but I definitely want to. It's time to ditch the Excel spreadsheets, shoeboxes filled with receipts and lost invoices, and start growing your own business. Set your business up for financial success by signing up for your free account today at waveapps.com slash the dream. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash T-H-E-D-R-E-A-M. Waveapps.com slash the dream. What is the secret to making great toast? Oh, okay. Okay. You're just going to go in with the hard-hitting questions. This is The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. This show isn't about fancy chefs or restaurants. It's not about cooking tips or healthy eating. It's not for foodies. It's for eaters. It's based on the idea that when you obsess about food, you can learn a lot about people. I'm a big proponent of keeping your food separate. Is, is, is that like an OCD thing? Like, tell me about your sock drawer. 
No, that I guess it's not an OCD. <laughs> <laughs> we love to use food to learn about culture, history, and science. Like the time we studied whether potato chips that crunch louder actually taste better. Or the time we recreated a pancake recipe found in Rosa Parks' personal documents. It just makes me more curious about her personal life. She's human. In every episode of The Sporkful, you're going to learn something, feel something, and laugh. The Sporkful from Stitcher. Subscribe now and join us. Something that came up a lot in our reporting was safety. Are supplements safe? And how would we know? A few weeks after I started taking all that moon juice stuff at whatever quantity I wanted because the label wasn't clear about what was appropriate, I began puking. Like about an hour after I'd take it, I'd puke anywhere from two to 10 times. It took me a few days to figure out what was wrong because honestly, my first instinct was not that it was the super trendy health powder that they sell at the cafe down the street from my house. I thought maybe I had a virus, but I didn't have a fever, so maybe food poisoning from the salads I'd started eating. And we all know about the great menace of tainted lettuce because they do lettuce recalls. So who knows? Eventually, I decided to stop taking the stuff. And coincidentally, the puking stopped. I didn't call Moon Juice or the grocery store where I bought the lettuce. I doubted myself. The fact that I didn't make a complaint, it's kind of a win for the industry. Our products are one of the safest products out there. I mean, if you look at the the number of recalls, even on the food side of the marketplace, I mean, every week there are recalls around food, salmonella, E. coli, listeria, one thing after another. But aren't there recalls around food because the regulation is more robust? No, actually it's less. If you If you look at the regulation of supplements, it lies somewhere between the regulation of food and the regulation of drugs. For instance, they don't have an adverse event reporting requirement We do. That would be incorrect. Food is uh, much more heavily regulated. There has to be significant scientific agreement. That's not the case with dietary supplements. Should supplements have a warning label if there are possible side effects or drug interactions? I think that uh, is a question that's best left to the individual ingredient. Uh, And if you notice, many supplements on the market do have uh, advisory statements on them because the manufacturer makes a, a conscious decision to alert consumers if, you know, for, for instance, if they're on a certain medication that might interact with it, um, or, you know, for instance, if uh, it's a product that contains a lot of caffeine, they'll uh, warn pregnant and lactating women to avoid the product. But that's a, really a, a decision that's best made on a product and ingredient basis. I certainly don't think that um, there is a rigorous system of uh, warning levels labels. Uh, There may be um, some, but again, there's very little scientific basis uh, or oversight. So you may see uh, uh, in some uh, instances uh, when there are allergies, uh, you may see uh, certain uh, warning labels. So St. John's Wort. What we know about St. John's wort is it can interfere with drugs that prevent things like transplant rejection or drugs that are used to treat heart disease, seizures, certain cancers. Do you believe that St. John's wort should be required to have some sort of warning label on its bottle? Again, I, I, at least if you're talking about my members, I think uh, I can't speak for every one of them, but I think most of my members who sell St. John's wort do include some kind of cautionary statement on the label. 
I, I would say that consumers ought to know about that if they're taking uh, medications that could interfere, you know, where supplements could interact with them. But, you know, that's a two-way street. We know that uh, grapefruits, for instance, uh, interact with a lot of prescription drugs, and we don't require warning labels on grapefruits. What we do is we require doctors to ask their patients before they prescribe that medication, tell me about what the, the products that you, you know, what do you eat? Uh, and and then the and the burden then is on the uh, the physician prescribing that product uh, to caution the the person not to eat grapefruit while they're on that medication. So I think it goes both ways. Doctors also have an obligation to understand that consumers, as I said, three quarters of Americans are using dietary supplements. They should be asking consumers about their supplement usage and then advising them if they need to go off of one of those products while they're on the drug. Do you think that doctors should be responsible for knowing each of the products that are on the market and the burden should shift to them for warning their patients if there are potential drug interactions. And where does the science come from on that? So the doctors are educated? Who does that? There are national databases that are available that will that doctors can consult that will tell them if there are potential interactions between supplements and certain uh, classes of drugs. They're proprietary, but doctors can certainly uh, get into them. What does that mean, they're proprietary? It means uh, some private company has developed them. Not a, not, a, not a supplement company, but some private information company or publishing house has developed a, the database. And so, you know, you pay an annual subscription fee to have access to it, and you can go in and look at these databases to see if there are potential interactions. Those are private companies that develop them, uh, so you can pay an annual subscription fee. I'm wondering, in your experience, if that seems to be an effective method for getting doctors' information. I think that, uh, again, this may not be uh, give you a lot of confidence, um, but when it comes to these dietary supplements, the average doc is clueless. Um, they may know one or two, certainly if you're an OBGYN, folic acid, because the science is there, um, they're going to be very knowledgeable about that. But the last thing you want to do is rely on your doc for dietary supplement uh, advice. I mean, unless that doc is prescribing them and they're knowledgeable and that's what their practice are. But that's that. Those are few and far be, between. You know, I've been dean of medical schools. I've trained medical students. I mean, there just is not that scientific uh, basis that has been um, uh, really developed over the last fifty years. Um, it's a it, again. Uh, they are they are low priorities. I read your code of ethics and some of the voluntary policing or uh, guidelines that you ask people to follow. How do you know that members of the CRN are actually complying with the code of ethics that the FDA or even the council has proposed? So we, we do self-police our guidelines. Uh, we occasionally will uh, take one of our guidelines and then go out and look at all of the companies in our uh, space uh, and look to see, you know, are our members actually uh, abiding by them? Uh, so, for instance, we have a, a voluntary guideline around protein to be sure that companies are accurately labeling their protein powders uh, with the right amount. Uh, and so, a couple of years ago, we went out and did a sort of an undercover operation. Uh, you know, purchased a lot of our company's products and sent them out for analysis. We were very pleased to, at the end of that, to be able to report back to the membership that they were 100% compliant. So, uh, we do those kinds of things on a regular basis to be sure that there's some teeth to our voluntary programs. 
I, what I'm wondering is if we want your scientists telling us whether something has a low enough level of toxicity or if it's effective. You know, I'm going to take personal affront at that, Dan. Uh, the fact that someone works for an industry trade association, they do not check their integrity at the door. And you're suggesting that because somebody works for an industry association that they somehow have a, has an agenda that would get in the way of their scientific uh, integrity? Uh, no, our, our scientists look at the uh, uh, the adverse event reports. They look at what's going on in the industry, and they are able to make, I think, you know, very strong independent judgments based on what they see. I mean, ask the average consumer what they think about the industry policing themselves. I mean, pick any industry you want. Um, are there some advantages? Sure. Does it really give you a lot of confidence? Probably not. So the, if the industry really cared uh, about consumer confidence, uh, it would not have uh, lobbied for DeShea. But that's what the industry bought through the enactment of uh, legislation. And as long as consumers understand when they pick up a dietary supplement that does not have the FDA imprimatur, then um, the consumer at least knows that they're on their own and can bring their own judgment to that. Do you think we should think of self-policing as not enough when it comes to things that we ingest that could affect our health? Well, self-policing is, is certainly not going to solve a problem in and of itself because we don't have uh, the kinds of sticks at the end of the day that uh, an enforcement agency would. You know, and that's one of the reasons that in addition to all of the self-regulatory uh, work that we do, we strongly support increasing resources to FDA. And in fact, uh, the industry working with some other groups uh, helped FDA get an additional $3 million this year in the budget, specifically for dietary supplement programs. $3 million may not sound like a lot, but uh, prior to this, the Office of Dietary Supplement Programs was operating on only about $7 million. So uh, going from $7 million to $10 million is a substantial increase for the agency. And that's really what needs to happen, is there needs to be more enforcement. Self-policing is not going to solve the problem on its own. Yeah, I, um, I think they 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 would like very much for there to be a strong FDA and the FDA to give their products cover. The problem uh, at the end of the day is while they may say they want a strong FDA, they don't want a strong FDA when it comes to the regulation of dietary supplements. Would I like to have other independent scientists also looking at this other than just the industry? Of course I would. And there are. There are groups like U.S. Pharmacopeia and NSF and Informed Choice that look at products as a third-party certifier. But that's a very different thing to say that a someone who works for my industry is incapable of analyzing well, adverse that's not events what I and making I didn't yes, say they were exactly incapable. I was saying that asking the public to trust the information that comes from an industry trade and lobby group is asking a lot. That's all I'm saying. U.S. Pharmacopeia, the USP, is a standard-setting organization. There's no doubt that for the last 100 years, the USP has worked very closely with FDA and has enacted uh, some of the highest standards in the world. But USP doesn't review labels or review claims. It sets standards. And in the case of dietary supplements, they, they can or cannot be uh, followed. I've always believed that one of the great things about the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act in the last hundred years 
of regulation is that it protects against economic fraud. Go back 100 years ago, and we lived uh, in a marketplace of snake oil. You put uh, a claim on uh, a bottle, and you can sell it for as long as you can maintain credibility in the eyes of the consumer. But that's economic fraud. And it's one of the great things about consumer protection and the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And those things are linked. No doubt, preventing harm is the first priority. Safety is the first priority. But I was the commissioner who sees thousands of gallons of orange juice that were labeled fresh when it wasn't fresh. Uh, and I did that because I thought consumers had a right to be able to trust the label. If you're going to sell a product and put it on the shelves and make a claim and say it's fresh, it should be fresh. Just imagine if the FDA could use this same power in the vitamin aisle at CVS or Whole Foods. Like, no, you cannot say that your product cures colds or fixes your digestion problems. That would be wild. But that's not the way it is. It's the Wild West. You know, the industry will look to what its competitors are doing. And if they're cheating and if they're getting away with things, they'll uh, likely do the same. But if you insist on certain standards, then everybody will rise to meet those standards. No doubt they're making sure that what's on the label is what's in the product. It may cost more in the short run, but just think of the millions and millions of dollars that we spend on products that don't work. Where is that money uh, going? I understand I took on the tobacco industry. Tobacco in some ways was easy compared to the dietary supplement industry. Tobacco, I think, in front of the American public does not have a lot of credibility. Uh, I think most people recognize that for 50, 75 years, that industry lied to the uh, American public. So people see the industry for what it is. The political clout, I mean, the lobbying effort on the part of the dietary supplement industry, the ginning up of the consumer to say FDA was going to take away your vitamins, um, they were very effective. Uh, We got beat by the dietary supplement uh, industry. They won. I think the public health lost, um, but so be it. Grandma Ruth called me the other day to wish me a happy birthday and to tell me she loves me and that God loves me. For all you wondering if we're still talking after I spoke negatively about her essential oils, yes. And I asked her what she thought of all this, of the idea of the government regulating her supplements. She told me she's frightened of that idea. And then she threatened that she'd have to start buying her essential oils and trace minerals and colloidal silver on the black market. Her beliefs about how these products benefit her, though so much evidence points to the contrary, wouldn't be shaken. So we started talking about my cousin's prom dress. We've been talking all season about the safety of unregulated wellness products that, though most of them just work their way through your system, have been known to hurt and even kill people, like that liver-destroying OxyElite Pro stuff that GNC was selling in Hawaii. But on top of the potential physical harm this stuff could do, who knows, because no one's really in charge, there's the financial harm the wellness industry inflicts upon us. 
the millions of dollars millions of people spend on tens of thousands of products and services that might not or simply don't work. Millions of dollars that would be better spent on things we at least know have some efficacy, that we don't have to believe in for them to help us. A complicated thing about wellness is that it means something different to each of us. I hated almost every wellness treatment I got during this journey because I spent so much precious, precious time and precious money and drove all over town to sit down somewhere other than my house where I can watch TV and hang out with my kid and eat fast food. I said almost every wellness treatment. After I was released from the hospital for the maybe measles, I went for one last wellness treatment on my tour of hellness. It was called a tuning fork session, which I kept referring to as getting forked. I had no idea what to expect. I imagined something like a sound bath, which I've also never been to, but I think is like sitting in a room while people play giant wine glasses sort of or something like that, but with tuning forks. Instead, what I got was one of the most moving, immersive, relaxing experiences of my entire life. I laid down on a massage table, just like you would to get a massage. I closed my eyes. The practitioner had a hard disc strapped to her leg that she tapped tuning forks on and then either placed them on my body in different places or walk around my head with them. I think a sound bath bowl thing was maybe used at some point, but I was so blissed out, I never once opened my eyes. After we were done and I sat up in a daze, like feeling super stoned, she said, this is going to sound weird, but are you sure this is your first time doing this? Yes. Okay, because you gave over to the experience faster than any first-time client I've had. Usually people are uncomfortable or ask questions, but you were just out. So, I hope you don't mind, but I did a little work on your inner child. Alright, I just left the tuning fork um, session, and I am not calling it forking anymore. Okay, that inner child thing kind of made me side-eye her because I was blissed out, but I was still Jane. But was I still Jane? Was I still me, the skeptic, the cynic, sitting there feeling better than I had in a really long time? I don't even feel like making any jokes right now. It was so... (laughs) Like, uh, um... I don't know, I'm feeling emotional. Um... I feel bad that I am doing this for a podcast, kind of. It made me feel really guilty. Um, and I didn't ask her if I could record because I didn't want to offend her. She was just really nice. I would go so far as to say I didn't feel like me in that moment, but I felt well. Oh, man. I don't know. All right. I'm going to call Dan. I'm kind of glad he's not here right now. I I don't know. I'd be really embarrassed. But all right. Uh, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to come back next week. It was so nice. Dream is a production of Little Everywhere and Stitcher, written and reported by me and Dan Gallucci. Editing by Peter Clowney and Tracy Samuelson. Producing by Lyra Smith and Stephanie Kariuki. 
The Dream is executive produced by me, Dan Gallucci, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineers are Casey Holford and Brendan Burns. Special thanks to Catherine Price. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Thank you.